Okay, so we are continuing in the book of Daniel, and we're going to be in chapter 4 tonight. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 4, that's where we'll be. And I want to start by giving just an overview of the structure of the book of Daniel, just so you can know how it's organized. And it's organized in what's called a chiasm. We've used that word before, but a chiasm is basically an out-and-back structure. And so you have layers that correspond until you get to the farthest part out, and that's the center. And then it comes back, and on the way back, something corresponds to what came before, and so on. So I'll explain what this looks like. Tonight, we're in chapter 4, which is in the middle of the book. It doesn't look like that because there's 12 chapters in Daniel, but really chapters 4 and 5 are part of the central part of the book of Daniel. It's in the middle, and they both deal with the pride of Babylonian kings. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Now, one step removed from that in chapters 3 and in 6, you have resistance and rescue stories. So a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Daniel 3 and the three young men in the fiery furnace. And that corresponds to chapter 6, which is Daniel and the lion's den. They're both resistance and rescue stories. Then another step removed from there, you have Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, of the four-part image, and then the rock that becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And in chapter 7, you have a corresponding story. It's a vision that Daniel has where he sees four beasts emerge from the sea, and then the Ancient of Days gives the kingdom to one like a son of man. So chapters 2 and chapter 7 relate to each other. And then 8 and 9 are kind of further commenting on chapter 7. And then at the very edges, at the borders, chapter 1 corresponds to chapters 10 through 12. 10 through 12 are all one unit. When we get there, I'm not going to preach line by line through 10 through 12. We would be here a long time if I did that. We're not going to do that. But 1 corresponds to 10 through 12. In chapter 1, Daniel and his friends go into exile, which is a kind of uh, death experience. But by the end, they're elevated into new positions in the king's court. And that's kind of a resurrection experience. And in chapter 10, Daniel uh, goes into a deep sleep, which is a kind of death, but he also experiences a kind of resurrection. So that's how the book is structured. It's an out and back piece, but four and five make up the central part. And when you have a chiasm, what is at the center is the heart of the book. It's the heart of the message. And we can summarize the heart of the message of the book of Daniel in the last verse of chapter 4 here, which says, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. So let's pray, and then we'll get into the text. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give your word to us and that your spirit helps us to understand it that we can be conformed to the image of your Son. And we pray that we would uh, be intently listening tonight and that we would have a great awareness of what it is that you want to speak to each of us, but also to us as a church. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we'll start verse 1 in chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. 
How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So as I said a couple of weeks ago, the phrase peoples, nations, and and languages is empire language. He's addressing the subjects in his empire, and this is a letter from Nebuchadnezzar that he sends throughout his whole empire. And he wishes peace and he wishes peace to his subjects and gives a testimony of what God has done for him. This is not the kind of thing that you would expect from a king who rules a large part of the world. A king would more likely brag about all that he's done and maybe give lip service to the gods or something like that. And as we'll see, that's the kind of heart that Nebuchadnezzar had until something happened. But that heart has now been changed at the time that he's sending this letter throughout his empire. If you remember when we talked about chapter 2 in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel says, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And here in chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar says his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion endures from generation to generation. So Nebuchadnezzar affirms that the kingdom of God is everlasting. There is no one above the God of heaven. And, And I don't know if you realize this, but this is worship. This is worship on the part of a Babylonian king. He is worshiping the God of heaven. It's the testimony of a converted king. And we saw glimpses of this in the earlier stories, in chapters 2 and 3. But that makes us want to ask, how did he get here? How did Nebuchadnezzar go from worshiping his own gods and maybe occasionally through Daniel and his friends getting a glimpse of the true God to now fully worshiping God and sending out this letter throughout his empire, testifying to the greatness of the God of heaven? How did Nebuchadnezzar get there? We'll pick it up at verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, The Chaldeans and the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. Now, one thing that you're probably asking, and I think we're all probably asking is, why does Nebuchadnezzar keep dragging these guys in? They've been nothing but ineffective so far throughout the the story of Daniel. And we were told in chapter 1 that Daniel and his friends were ten times better Then even Nebuchadnezzar's own men, these astrologers and Chaldeans that he keeps bringing in to try to help him. And they're nothing but ineffective. Plus, at the end of chapter 2, we're told that Daniel was made chief prefect over all the wise men in Babylon. So why wouldn't Nebuchadnezzar bring his top guy, who's over all the rest, in to help him interpret this dream? And beyond that, as I think we'll see when we look at the dream itself, this dream is not all that difficult to interpret. 
It's really not all that hard. There's a giant tree with its branches spreading out everywhere, and it gets chopped down. Nebuchadnezzar probably had a pretty good idea that that meant he was going to suffer some kind of humiliation, that he was going to be cut down. He probably figured he was the tree and that the cutting down was pointing to him. That's not the kind of news that a king wants to hear, right? And so he saw it, I think he saw other interpretations of the dream before finally being forced to get the whole truth from Daniel. He's trying to find another angle on this dream that maybe doesn't give him as bad a news as he thinks is coming. Now, it's not only kings who do that kind of thing. We tend to do that. We tend to do that kind of thing. Maybe we complain about not having enough time. And we might know one or two people that we could go to and lay out and say, you know what, I just feel like I don't have enough time. And they know us well enough that they could say, well, you know, in all honesty, you, you spend a lot of time doing this and you really shouldn't spend so much time doing that. Or you could, you could have more time if you, if you gave this up or if you did this. But that would give us a painful and accurate picture of what we're doing with our time. And that might mean cutting out things that we like. And so instead, we read a couple of blog posts now and then about time management. We pick up a couple of tips and tricks about how to manage our time better. Or maybe we have financial problems. And we know that we could sit down, that there are some people in the church that we could sit down with, we could open the books, we could open up our financial picture, And they know how to budget and they know how to make really wise decisions about finances. We have such people. But then again, the pain point would be such that we might feel bad about ourselves and we would likely have to change. And so instead, we look for some money-saving tips or we do nothing. Okay? I don't know if that hits home for anybody. But the point is that Kings are not the only ones who try to find other interpretations of what we know to be true. Nebuchadnezzar's doing that here. He probably knows what the dream means for him, and he doesn't like it. And rather than call in Daniel and face the unhappy truth, he summons in these wise guys in the hope that they might have some other plausible explanation, some kind of straw that he can grasp. But not surprisingly, they don't. They don't have anything that they can tell him. And so the king has only one option left. Verse 8. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream, that I saw and their interpretation. So finally, Nebuchadnezzar calls for trusty Daniel, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And that's kind of an unfortunate translation. It's not, it's not a very good one. Uh, instead, it should be translated the spirit of holy God, in whom is the spirit of holy God. And there are some grammatical angles to this. I'm not going to bore you with them. But basically, the plural gods is kind of what we would think of as referring to the royal we. Whenever you, as you know, in first person, are actually referring to yourself in the plural, you ever you, you might not do that, but sometimes people do that. They refer to themselves in the royal we, and I think that's probably what's going on here. 
um, Nebuchadnezzar knows that Daniel only worships one God. It wouldn't make sense for, for Nebuchadnezzar to tell Daniel that the spirit of the holy gods is in him because he knows that Daniel only worships one God. And it's the spirit of that holy God that is in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar knows it, and he knows that by asking Daniel, he is going to get the whole unvarnished truth. No spin. When you call in a Daniel to speak truth to you, you're done playing games. You're done evading the truth that you kind of already know. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here. Verse 10. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong and its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches and all flesh was fed from it. So Nebuchadnezzar has a dream of a giant tree and this tree reaches to heaven and it's visible to the end of the whole earth. Now, if you remember in chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar is told by Daniel that he is the head of gold. And we talked about how because he's the head of gold, his rule is closest to heaven. Well, now we get that idea just through a different image. He's now a tree and the treetops are in the heavens. And in this dream, there are birds and beasts and all flesh receive from this tree. And in chapter two, Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, he said, into your hand, he is given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over all. And all that has happened. And so Nebuchadnezzar's empire has spread far and wide to all kinds of peoples and nations and languages. And surely Nebuchadnezzar hadn't forgotten what Daniel had told him earlier about the other dreams. So when he has this dream of this world-dominating tree that feeds beasts and birds and all human flesh, he has to know that he is the tree. He has to know that by having this dream that the tree is pointing to him. Does that make sense? He has to know that. Now, if you're him and you're the king, so far so good, right? You're this big spreading tree. And you're, you're giving life and nourishment to everything. But, verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But leave the stump of its roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So the dream takes a sudden turn. 
for the king. This magnificent tree is commanded to be chopped down. And this command comes from a watcher, a holy one. Now, if you've read the whole book of Daniel recently, you might remember that the latter part of the book has a lot of these figures. Uh, these, these, we would think of them probably as angels. Sometimes they're called, uh, a man, there's one, that, a man who's clothed in linen. Um, sometimes they're called angels, but they're God's heavenly agents who play a role in the affairs of earth. And we'll talk about them more in a couple of weeks when we get to the back half of the book of Daniel. But for now, it's enough to know that these, uh, these beings are called the watchers. And they've been paying attention to what kind of king Nebuchadnezzar is. They've been watching him. They know that God's ordained Nebuchadnezzar's rule, but the king has ruled unjustly, and he's ruled with pride in himself and his accomplishments, and that's a problem. And the watchers have noticed. And that means that this tree has to come down. And if Nebuchadnezzar had any hope that the tree didn't refer to him, that hope is shattered in verse 15. I don't know if you noticed the change in the pronouns. So prior to verse 15, it says, chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. But then in verse 15, it says, let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. So from it to him. There could be no doubt for Nebuchadnezzar that he is going to be chopped down and in a sense turned into a beast. Have the mind of a beast. And by the way, I think, I think his wise men absolutely knew this too. They just didn't want to tell the king and arouse his anger. But the spirit of holy God is in Daniel. So what is he going to say? Verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. So while Nebuchadnezzar had been trying to divert from the truth earlier by bringing in the wise guys, now he's ready for the truth. And he says, Daniel, I'm not going to get angry. I'm not going to retaliate if you tell me the truth. I want to know. I want to hear what you have to tell me. I want to know what the dream means. And as crazy as Nebuchadnezzar has been at times, Daniel still feels some affection for him. Daniel has kind of been like his pastor. And he knows the severity of this dream's meaning. And so when Daniel hears the dream, he's dismayed because he knows what this is going to mean for the king. And it's going to mean a tough time for him for a while. Verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, so that its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which beasts of the field found shade, and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven, and saying, Chop down the tree and destroy it, 
but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze, in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among man, and your dwelling shall be with the, with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness, and let your iniquities, or, sorry, and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. So much of what Daniel says here is repeated from the dream that Nebuchadnezzar told him. So the one key difference really stands out, and it's in 427. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. So... Once Nebuchadnezzar was scared about the dream, he calls in his wise guys, hoping for a way out. Once he gives that up, he calls in Daniel, figuring there's no way out. But now Daniel is giving him a way out. He's actually giving the king a possible way out of being chopped down. And he says, you have to repent. You have to break off of your sins and your iniquities. The way out is the way of repentance for Nebuchadnezzar. He needs to turn from his sin and he needs to practice righteousness, and he needs to show mercy to the oppressed. And if he does, perhaps God will spare him the humbling that he really deserves. And why not? Because remember, Jonah prophesied to the Ninevites that Nineveh was going to be overthrown and destroyed. But when the king of Nineveh humbled himself with sackcloth and ashes, and the people followed, God didn't overthrow the city. So Nebuchadnezzar has a way out. But it will require him to completely change the way that he is king. He is going to have to change the way that he likes to be king. He'll have to rule not for the perks of being king, but for the privilege of serving through leadership. And so we ask, will he do it? Will he break off his sins? Will he be a servant leader? Well, no. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, 
and his nails were like bird's claws. So, so far, up to this point, up to this section, we've gotten what Nebuchadnezzar has written to the peoples, nations, and languages about what God's done for him. But here, in this brief section, we get kind of an an editorial edition, something that Daniel probably wrote and inserted to show what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar gets a whole year to take Daniel's counsel, but he doesn't do it. And specifically, the text says, at the end of 12 months. And, and it, might, it might seem like just something that we could blip over at the end of 12 months. But we might think, why doesn't it say at the end of one year or at the end of a year? Uh, we don't say at the end of 24 hours. We say at the end of a day. Uh, why does it say at the end of 12 months? There's only one other place in the Bible where the time frame 12 months is given. And that's in Esther chapter 2, verse 12. And in the, in the original organization of the Hebrew Bible, Daniel and Esther are, are right next to each other in the Bible. They're not, they're not in the same order in our Bibles. But in the original order, they're right next to each other. And in Esther 12, 2, it says... Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulation for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. So in Esther, virgins spent 12 months getting ready to audition in front of the king to be queen. They were auditioning to be queen. And they have 12 months to prepare Okay, so you might say, okay, so what? Here's the connection. At the end of 12 months, Nebuchadnezzar fails his audition before holy God. He has 12 months to beautify himself through repentance, through practicing righteousness, and by showing mercy to the oppressed. And at the end of 12 months, he has failed the audition. He has not come prepared Unlike, audition, uh, unlike Esther, he is not prepared and he fails the audition. Does that make sense? And so he will have to go into exile just as he had taken Judah into exile. He is going to have to go into exile himself. And it says for seven periods of time, which is kind of ambiguous, we don't know exactly how long Nebuchadnezzar was exiled. But we are told that it's long enough for his hair to grow as long as eagle's feathers and for his nails to become like bird's claws. And that takes a long time. We don't know if that's seven months. We don't know if that's seven years. But that takes a long time for hair to grow like that, for nails to grow like that. Uh, to, to test this, uh, Brian Cross graciously agreed not to cut his hair or his fingernails for seven months to see what kind of what's resulted at the end of seven months. So we're, we're real interested to see the, his scientific approach to that. Verse 34. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So Nebuchadnezzar's praise mirrors the praise that he opens with at the beginning of his letter. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. 
And his kingdom endures from generation to generation. And that's an echo of the everlasting kingdom from chapter 2. Verse 36. At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol the honor and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So the last word is that those who walk in pride, God is able to humble. In these first four chapters of Daniel, we've seen Nebuchadnezzar acknowledge and praise the Most High God, but also continue to do things his way, even taking credit for what God has given him. But as the story ends... And Nebuchadnezzar now fades out of Daniel's story. He doesn't appear again in the rest of the book of Daniel. We're meant to know that at this point, the king of Babylon has fully submitted himself to God's rule. He is the head of gold, and his eyes are lifted fully to heaven. Nebuchadnezzar finally gets it. He's God's appointed ruler for this time, but he is not the highest king. And he sends this letter throughout the whole empire that he rules to acknowledge that while he's king of the Babylonian Empire, he rules only by the pleasure of the true God. Amen? All right. So I have a couple of uh, points of application. I have three. And the first one is you never know what God is going to do with a king. You never know what God is going to do with a king. Proverbs 21.1 says, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Nebuchadnezzar is really one of the most unlikely converts in history. He's king of an empire, and whatever he believed about his own gods, he saw himself as fully in charge. And the Jews that he brought in were a conquered people. And so their god might be interesting, but he sure wasn't much help to them. They were a conquered people. So if he, was, if he was their God, he was the God of a conquered people. He didn't save the people from exile. So it doesn't seem like Nebuchadnezzar would have thought very much of this God. And yet here he is at the end of chapter 4. Again, the only figure to appear in all four stories in the first four chapters of Daniel. Praising God and his everlasting kingdom. And Daniel and his three friends are a huge part of his conversion. There they are in chapter 1, setting themselves apart by not partaking of the king's food and wine. And in doing so, they could offer the king faithful service without being owned by him. There they are in chapter 2 with Daniel delivering the interpretation that God wanted Nebuchadnezzar to know, a message about God's new house in a fourfold succession of empires. And Nebuchadnezzar glimpses the reality of God through Daniel and through Daniel's ability to not only interpret the dream, but also tell what the dream was. And there's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3, calmly but firmly resisting Nebuchadnezzar's overreach into controlling worship. And through them, Nebuchadnezzar saw the Son of God protecting them from the burning, fiery furnace. And there's Daniel in chapter 4, pastorally giving Nebuchadnezzar the hard truth he needed to hear and exhorting him to break off of his sins and to move into repentance. I think the picture the Bible gives us is that Nebuchadnezzar is in heaven. And that in our own day, 
through good work and through faithful service and through non-dramatic, non-hysterical resistance to what's false, we can play a role in the salvation of unlikely converts. Praise God. Number two, humble yourself or God will humble you. Humble yourself or God will humble you. It's no random detail that Nebuchadnezzar is on the roof of his palace when he is stricken with insanity, when he boasts and then is stricken with insanity. He's on the roof of his palace, and that's not an accidental detail. I think the writer is making a link to King David, who also walked on the roof of his royal house and because of his pride also suffered a fall. There's also a connection to David's predecessor, King Saul, Nebuchadnezzar is told that the kingdom has departed from him, just like Samuel tells Saul that the kingdom has departed from him. And for Saul, the spirit departs from him, and an evil spirit comes to torment him. And for Nebuchadnezzar, uh, God leaves him, and he is stricken with insanity when the kingdom departs from him. So we have parallels to two kings in the book of Samuel. And I think Nebuchadnezzar's pride and his humiliation is meant to cast a backward glance at Saul and David. We're supposed to be thinking of them. The biblical writer wants us to be thinking of Saul and David. Nebuchadnezzar struts upon his roof thinking that he's too big to fail, that he had accomplished everything himself. That's pride with a capital P. And it's that sin that the writer has in mind when he ties the story to Saul and David. Saul thought that he was important enough to offer the sacrifice, even though Samuel said, don't offer the sacrifice. Wait till I come. And David had thought that as he, because he was king, he could take liberty with another man's wife and even resort to murder to cover it up. And I think what we're meant to learn from this connection between Nebuchadnezzar and these two kings is that the higher you go, the more you have to beware of pride. The higher you go up, the more you have to beware of pride. I'm sure you all remember uh, the, the slap, you know, Will Smith slapping Chris Rock, right, at the Academy Awards. Well, after that, I don't know if you saw this story, but after that, uh, Denzel Washington met with Will Smith and talked with him and he prayed with him. And he told Will Smith this, he said, at your highest moment, be careful, that's when the devil comes for you. At your highest moment, be careful, because that's when the devil comes for you. Or as T.S. Eliot said, the way up is the way down. And it can be scary to think about that. Um, it, it almost makes you just want to keep your head down and not, do, and not reach for anything good, not try to aspire to anything if pride is, is that possible. How can we withstand the temptation to pride? You might, and you might say, well, you know what, I'm never going to rise that high. I, I'm either not that ambitious or just my station in life, I'm never going to rise that high. But it's equally prideful to look at our households maybe and say, I followed all the rules and so my kids turned out well. Or I do everything that God asks of me and so I'm successful. That's pride too. Unfortunately, it's very possible to make our life in God and to make our life in the church a source of building ourselves up in pride. So how do we survive this subtle, very subtle temptation? James 4.10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So to, to counter what Eliot said, 
Eliot said that the way up is the way down, but really the way down is the way up. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We can intentionally choose paths that dig into our own self-reliance and require us to ask for and to receive God's grace. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And we can choose paths that, that require us to rely on God, not trust in ourselves. When Paul prays in Ephesians 3 that we may have the strength with all the saints to comprehend the breadth and length and height and depth, he's praying that we may know where and how to apply the cross in every aspect of our lives. And if we are, if we are laying before God where we can apply the cross in every aspect of our lives, we are humbling ourselves in the sight of the Lord. You can't really be pinned to the cross and be elevating yourself at the same time. And very often that means choosing to go what goes against our instincts, our wants, our free time, our fun, our idea of a good life. But we remember that we follow a king who on Palm Sunday rode into Jerusalem to joyful cheers and shouts and fanfare, and yet all along he was looking straight through to the Roman cross that was waiting for him. John 2 says that Jesus knew what was in a man. And so he didn't get caught up in his reputation. He didn't get caught up in the accolades that people said about him. For the joy that was set before him, Jesus fixed his eyes on the cross. And we follow his lead as we humble ourselves. Amen? Finally, third point. Do you need to call in a Daniel? Do you need to call in a Daniel? You bring in the wise guys when you're hoping to avoid the truth. You bring in Daniel when you're ready to face the truth. And when you bring in a Daniel, he will lead you to repentance. So maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your kids. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your health. Maybe you're stagnant in your discipleship, discipleship to Jesus and you haven't moved forward in a long time. Whatever it is, you know that there's a problem. This isn't necessarily a blind spot. You know that there's a problem. But you're trying to manage the pain instead of going to the root of the problem. You're looking for surfacy kinds of solutions through tips and tricks and not letting Daniel tell you the hard truth. But you can't tip and trick your way to maturity. You can't get there through tips and tricks. And if that's the case for you, please know that I am not coming down on you. I am fully aware of my own capacity for self-deception and pain management. I'm fully aware. But protecting the self means that you have, you have to live in a kind of unreality to sustain that if you're going to protect yourself. I want to protect myself from embarrassment and from painful consequences and from looking bad. And so I take measures to deny that to deny what's true to a level that I'll live in a kind of unreality so I don't have to face it. But when we live in that kind of space, that unreality, that is a kind of hell. That's a kind of hell. I may get what I want. I may not have to face the hard truth. I may not feel bad about myself. And I may not be found out or, or be embarrassed or have a privilege taken away. But it will be harder living with consequences. In The Magician's Nephew, Aslan says, everybody gets what they want. They do not always like it. Everybody gets what they want. They do not always like it. 
True repentance must begin with an insistence upon reality. God doesn't move on until we do. And so the question is not, are you ready for a Daniel to speak into your life? Because we might not be ready for that. The question is, will you do it anyway? And I would encourage you, if, if, you, if you're thinking about somebody, if you're thinking about somebody to talk to, write the name down. If you're taking notes, write the name down. And, and make a plan to talk to that person soon. Because I think we've said this before, when it comes to applying things from sermons, from teachings, you've got maybe 24 to 48 hours. And after that, you've just kind of rolled on with life and it fades out of consciousness and you don't really think about it much anymore. And consider that this is a holiday weekend. Probably everybody has plans. More than likely, 15 minutes after you hit the door, you might not be thinking about the sermon. You might stop thinking about the person that you were thinking about talking to. So if you're thinking about somebody, write it down now and make a plan to talk to that person soon. Amen?